0: Weekly Weights with Burt and Hayes, we lift the weights and go on dates, and we are mates that educate and conversate, and it's our podcast! Weekly Weights with Alex
1: and Will.
0: Welcome to episode 97 of Weekly Weights, my name is Alex Hayes, and joining me on Zoom again is Will, and joining both of us today is Bryce Lewis from Colorado, yeah Bryce? Yeah, Colorado. So thanks for joining us today, man. You've been on the um, podcast before back in, I think, episode 46 or episode 47, talking about sports psychology. So for anyone who hasn't already listened to that one, go back and listen to that because that was a really, really good episode. Um, So Bryce, you want to give a quick intro on yourself again?
1: Yeah, um, I am a 105 kilo powerlifter and strength coach out of Colorado in the United States. I started a business called The Strength Athlete in 2013. We've been coaching uh, drug-free powerlifters since then, and it's been uh, it's been wonderful. So, on the coaching side of things, we work with around 120 people at a time. Uh, on the lifting side of things, uh, I currently am the national champion and headed toward a delayed World Championships that's now in uh, late September, early October.
0: How likely do you think that's going to go ahead?
1: Um, I think it'll. I think it'll go ahead. Um, the thing that I'm mainly worried about is how close it is to our national championships. It's like a one week turnaround uh, compared to when USA Powerlifting normally hosts raw nationals. So the few people who are competing at IPF Worlds are going to be a little up in the air about how performance is going to go for a one week turnaround. Yeah, I think
2: for powerlifting, particularly, like. Having uncertainty around when competitions is going to be and having short turnarounds, are like that's like the perfect storm of things you would not normally see because we're normally like a single peak sport where you know exactly when competitions are going to be so far in advance that you can just plan all of your training around it.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, for other sports, there's a lot more flexibility on exactly when you compete because conditions for optimal performance like aren't as fine tuned. You know, if if you're a volleyball team, it doesn't matter whether you need to jump on this coming Saturday or whether you need to jump two Saturdays from now, it's, it's going to be about the same vertical.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the reason we, um, reason we asked Bryce back on the podcast other than because we like him is, is actually to do with the strength athlete itself and to do with the idea of building a really, a really comprehensive coaching system generally. Um, so Bryce, the first question we've got written down for you is just to talk about what key functions you see a coach as
1: serving. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the most obvious ones are you're the tactician. So you're the one that puts uh, training down on the page that the athlete is meant to do. And you know, that's a great and really valuable service. You're also the troubleshooter. So when things aren't going well, you need to figure out how to make them go well. you know, that, that includes everything with, you know, what happens when someone's demotivated or what happens when someone's body weight is too low or too high, or they're missing training loads or, you know, they have aches and pains and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's some function of education that I think is important too, uh, some function of keeping the athlete's head screwed on straight uh, and enjoying things. And the combination of all of those things is, is, I think, what summarizes coaching. What about you guys?
0: Were you you laughing there because Will doesn't have his head screwed on straight?
1: (laughs) Man, Bryce is... Will is fantastic.
2: Bryce is probably... So Bryce is coaching me right now and you've probably inherited me at like the most tumultuous time in my (laughs) life. I think he started with me the week that, that my gym closed completely unexpectedly that I was working at. So I went through a couple of weeks of unemployment and reshaping everything. Then I went through like contract negotiations with a couple of gyms and then we finally started again. And there's been this very inconvenient pandemic and now we're training from home and he's just been sort of coaching me through a slow descent into madness. And My (laughs) updates have gone further and further from actual videos of training and more towards just memes.
1: And it's only going to get worse. Yeah. I was going to say the memes is the thing that really carries the coaching through. Um, And if there's one suggestion I would give any coach, it's it's to have your athletes send you as many memes as possible.
0: (laughs) If, if, If there's any takeaway, we can at least take away that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, okay in
2: terms of the things that you should get from coaching um, like fundamentally I agree obviously um, and you did mention sort of the function of also keeping an athlete's head on straight and a word that um, that your coach Eric Helms used a few times when I've heard him talk about it was like being an ally to your athlete as well being somebody who sort of like is a co-navigator with the athlete as they're trying to you know get from A to B in their training journey and for myself, something that I've that I've begun to realize is like as my athletes become more advanced as lifters, they should also become maybe not more independent entirely, but like they should be driving the process more and more and I should be a resource to them as they sort of figure out where they need to go rather than me being like the absolute master navigator all the time. So that's something you'd agree with Alex and Bryce,
0: I guess. Yeah, definitely. That's certainly a trend that I have with my lifters is it's certainly more... Um, autocratic for beginners. It's like you know, do this for a few months, and then you know we'll have another conversation about being a bit more collaborative, and then again down the line, even more collaboration.
2: Yeah, and I think. think, Sorry, go ahead, Will. Well, I was going to say, I think it's also it's not just to do with like how experienced athletes are, because like that's how I first referenced it. It's also got to do with certain people's disposition. Like I have a guy, his name's Daniel reasonably new lifter, really smart guy, and he's an exercise physiologist, but he's just like, he's such a cool and objective person generally, Um, and obviously has like a good fundamental knowledge of exercise, that his coaching's already like reasonably collaborative. You know, we talk about like what he wants to get out of training, what solutions are, come to an agreement and things, and he's like six or eight weeks into his, his whole powerlifting training process. Then I have other people who are powerlifters and coaches themselves who just as a person do better when i kind of tell them what to do a lot more and they might come to me and say "Well, this is my problem but it's still up to me to come back and say well here's a solution to that problem are you happy with that rather than asking them to sort of self problem solve if that makes sense
1: mm-hmm. yeah i do think not everyone wants to be essentially partially a coach they want to be all the way an athlete you know and and i used to be that way too with my own programming and just saying like hey give me some loads don't give me RPEs, just tell me what to put on the barbell and I'll do it and I'll be happy. And, you know, we've switched to a little bit more auto regulation these days, but some athletes certainly just want to be in the passenger seat. You know, they don't want to drive. They don't even want to backseat drive. They just, they kind of want to be along for the ride and and that's fine. So part of our job as coaches is figuring out which type of athletes we're dealing with. And, And I think an easy way to kind of start down that path is just to start asking some questions so just saying things like hey you know here's the last four weeks of training we did uh what did you like what didn't you like you know just kind of starting to get a little bit of feedback from the athlete and seeing how receptive they are um do they even know what they like or don't like uh you know do they know what feels good or feels bad or which things they were more drawn to or something like that that's an easy way to kind of start that conversation off i think um you,
2: like when you said, you know, coaches are the tacticians, like it's on us to plan and give our athletes direction and stuff. That probably to like the greatest degree was how I envisaged my coaching practice as well, even like as recently as a couple of years ago. And if you go back to like very early um, early episodes of Weekly Weights, I'd have probably spoken about how like I didn't really consider it my job to motivate my athletes because they hired me because I obviously wanted to get better. So job done. And, and really it was about me like figuring out exactly what the best thing to do for an athlete is and then just telling them. Um, but there are, there are definitely some pitfalls to that type of coaching as well. Um, so what are maybe some pitfalls of being like too autocratic or not, like not focused enough on the athlete that you have at hand?
1: Uh, there's a danger of treating the athletes too much like a set of numbers, I think, you know, and, and just kind of the conversation begins and ends there. Um, And if if you really don't care too much about motivation, what are you going to do when the athlete doesn't check in for a few weeks? You know, like, are you just going to keep giving them training? Are you going to ask them, hey, what's going on? And what happens when they actually say, well, I've got some personal stuff going on. You're like, well, cool. Hope you have fun dealing with that. You know, there's still this line to draw that we're not therapists, but I think we're far more than just putting numbers down on a page and, and the personal side of things, uh, uh, really matters. And I think makes this job a lot more fun to me. You know, I had a, a, a young athlete who sent me a check-in today and she was telling me that during this time off, she's been drawing more, she showed me her drawings, you know, showed me a custom dress she tailored and I love that stuff because it helps you get closer to the athlete and, and um, gives you something to relate, you know, like, Oh wow. The only experience I have with sewing is tailoring Natalie's uh, bench shirt, you know, and, and, you know, what's your experience? And it just, People think that it's separate from coaching, but I think those, uh, experiences are kind of avenues to get closer to each other and that kind of stuff, um, probably increases buy-in. It increases the chance that someone's likely to stay with you as a paying athlete, if, if you're interested in that at all. Um, and probably just straight up adherence to, to the training approach.
0: So to add to that Bryce, I think when you get to know someone and you build a relationship with a lifter it really adds to how much enjoyment you get out of the relationship when you see them succeed. And I think that's like, that makes your job so much more fun and enjoyable if you're actually like truly invested in them as a person rather than just like, Oh cool. You squatted 250 kilos.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You get to know kind of why these things matter. And I think that makes you buy in a a lot more for sure. Yeah. And it's
2: also, It's also the case that like for many athletes it might be weeks and weeks before there's actually something really noteworthy in their training that you need to draw their attention to. So like being able to punctuate just saying good job, keep going with some genuine conversation about like, you know, what's going on in the rest of their life, you know, things that they care about, like stuff that actually makes them like engaging with you as a coach so that when they do suddenly need that resource again, they want to reach out is like, you know, it's like it serves your purposes as a coach as well.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I think uh, uh, conversations can be learning moments too. So just like Will was saying, if they reach out to you at some point and they get a really good response and they, they feel that you're engaged and that you care about them, they're going to be much more likely to reach out to you again down the line when something else goes wrong for sure. And if, if you work with someone for long enough, the number of times you're going to talk about their squat and their squat technique is going to progress down to zero. You know, it's going to be more about the bar load or good job. You know, there's less nitpicking on someone's technique and, and the number of things you might be saying on a regular basis drops and and that's good. It's not bad. And that's part of kind of saying an athlete free, but it certainly does leave a lot of room for other aspects of coaching. So what about the flip side?
2: What would be some, possible pitfalls of a style that's maybe too collaborative.
1: Um, if, if something's too collaborative, so I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, early on I was, um, I was an intern for 3d MJ and I was co-coaching an athlete with Eric Helms, uh, named Johnny Watson. Johnny was a 93 kilo lifter from the UK. Fantastic uh, coach in his own right now. And, um, he was a pretty motivated lifter and, you know, kind of testing around with some, some coaching ideas and stuff. And he said, well, what about this? You know, let's add this and let's try this. Uh, and you know, six months down the line, we ended up with this Frankenstein version of a training program. And we looked at this and said, how did we get here? And it was just by accepting too much of the athlete's input into the training approach. And it was all, it was all good ideas, but the combination of everything together just made for something that none of us had, had ever planned for, you know, so there has to be some kind of a balance where someone's still steering the ship and making coaching decisions, you know? Yeah. I think there's
0: a few, I think there's a few ways that we can start to add collaboration, which, you know, don't really matter so much in the grand scheme of things, but can add to just the enjoyment of training for the lifter. Like, I think that's something that's really, really important, especially with like stuff like just accessory exercises and stuff like that that's a lot of, for power, there's a lot of people don't like doing their accessory work, but if you have a conversation with them and you ask them, you know, like, okay, we don't need to fill in three, uh, three slots for back training, for instance, in the week. Like, which back exercises do you like the most? And we'll put those ones in and that might add to the enjoyment and the buy-in and the adherence, and then the, the likelihood that they're actually going to succeed and progress in those areas.
2: Yeah, and similarly, you can buy like in the way in which you communicate about the program you can almost make something feel more collaborative when you're still telling them what to do just by explaining yourself a little bit or saying like, hey, you know, you told me this, like here's a solution I thought of, thought it'd be pretty cool. What do you reckon, you know, I've given you work upsets for your deadlifts or something. And like, often as not a client will look at that and go, you know, great, that's something new, like suits my needs. Terrific, like I'm thrilled. And they feel like they've had a say in the process when really the decision's almost already been made. And yeah. sure, like if they came back and said, I hate that, you'd have to change it but that's actually kind of rarely the case or in my experience it rarely is anyway.
0: Yeah. Even like just uh, finalizing down to to one or two decisions, like, you know, here's the problem. The solution is A or B, which would you prefer A or B and A or Mm -hmm. B are going to be really, really close and probably don't matter too much in the grand scheme of things. But if it helps them buy and it helps them do it, it's going to, you know, improve their performance down the track.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. So, even if I don't think that doing pause deadlifts is really going to make someone's deadlift better. If they're bought into the fact that they saw Sean Noriega doing heavy pause sumo deadlifts and and they're all about it and I give them to that and they're really excited about their training. Well, fantastic. They're going to go in with more effort. They're going to enjoy their training. They're going to apply themselves a little bit more. Wonderful. And it's kind of a, a, what is going to progress an athlete more? Is it finding the perfect movement for them or is it finding the one that they feel more excited about, you know, and there's probably not a clear answer all the time, but the fact that we don't have a clear choice probably means that athlete impact and what the athlete wants to do matters. So
2: this kind of like kind of works as a segue into our next question, which was discussing this idea of moving from like coaching, just being a transfer of knowledge and us telling people what to do and more towards, an idea of like collaboration and the athlete helping drive the process a bit. Um, We're kind of already saying we don't think those ideas live in direct opposition to each other, but do you reckon there are times when, when we do need to lean on being autocratic and times when we should really pull back the jump out at you, Bryce?
1: Yeah. So there are times as an athlete where your perception of how your training is going don't need a response when it comes to the change of training you know like coach i'm heavy things feel slow right now things are fatigued right now well i've designed things in such a way that you should feel fatigued right now so we're not going to change things you know like there are some times where the athlete just kind of has to suck it up and get through something you know or this is a lot of volume my session is taking three hours well this is the amount of volume that you need to progress you know I'm, i'm not saying these are always the decisions you need to make but um the customer's always right approach doesn't always apply to powerlifting. Um, so there are times when athletes just kind of need to grind, uh, or, or deal with the way that that training is and things being easy, aren't always the right way to go. Sometimes the the difficult movement is the right choice specifically because it's difficult. And when you have
2: an athlete who like mates mates your, um, your rationalizations with like opposition, and they're just they're just not keen to keep going. At what point do you just like cut your losses and say like fine we'll do what you want, or how do you at least like navigate those discussions to try and get them to buy into your ideas?
1: That's a that's a great question. Um, I start off by so even before stuff gets down on the page, I'm asking for the athlete's feedback and input and creating their training approach based on most of that stuff. You know, so powerlifting training is flexible enough that as long as an athlete doesn't come up with an idea out of left field and it's a bad idea, you can fit most of the stuff in. So, you know, I I start off a lot of training approaches by saying, Hey, based on a call, based on the suggestions that, that, you know, you gave me, here's a training approach. And we've got just about all those in, except I made this and this modification. That's a great start. And the athlete comes back and says, Hey, that's cool. um, Except I really don't like this thing. Uh, I'm used to benching only two days a week and I'm really not, I'm not keen on benching three or four days a week like you have programmed for me. And, you know, if, if I can come to some kind of compromise and still feel like I'm not doing the athlete a disservice by giving them a program that's not going to progress them, then I'll do that. You know, like we know enough about training volume to say, okay, well, I'll just take the same training volume and put it on two days instead of four days. Or I'll disguise some of it that was benching as dumbbell benching or push ups, and we're set. You know, like there's a lot of ways we can – we can – Finagle things a little bit, but to your question will like if you really kind of butt heads and you just can't get past something um, I'll try to give the athlete the benefit of the doubt and If that doesn't work, I'll try to kind of just kind of repeat my points like hey, this is I really think this is a good idea This is why we've made these decisions. I know this is difficult. Let's try it for a few weeks Let's reevaluate at that point and let's kind of come back and see if we still want to do it If you're still not liking it, let's make a change
2: I think when you have those when you have those moments where like you just don't agree on something where you're like basing your decision fundamentally on what you think is best for the athlete as an athlete it can also just illuminate like where their values lie and I have I've have one client in particular I'm thinking of now she's a super keen lifter but there's just only so far that she wants her powerlifting training to go and if it was the choice between doing like five 90 minute sessions a week that were really hard or four 60 to 70 minute sessions that are moderately hard. And I said, the thing that is going to really, really get you past your next big plateau really quickly is stepping up training. She just wouldn't want to do it anyway. And Mm -hmm. that would be totally fine because that says like, this is how important training is to me. This is like, this is the way in which it's going to contribute to my life positively. Let's train that way. And if it doesn't work and it doesn't work, but we can try and exhaust all avenues there before making her do something that she just flat doesn't, you know? I think yeah. there's
0: a, there's, I think like everyone lies on the spectrum and everyone's willing to do a certain level to get to where they want to go. Like for you, Bryce, you're pretty much willing to do whatever it takes to be the world champion, right? Yeah. And then there's going to be, you know, steps down here and there, like for each person. And it's kind of about finding out where they lie on that spectrum to deliver them the protocol that's going to suit them the best.
1: Yeah. And I think that's just about, the goals being the goals the athlete has chosen not the goals that you have chosen you know like I have a few athletes during this period of time where you know they're not really seeking out equipment uh to kind of find a way to train when their their gym is closed they're just like well I'm just going to make make do with push-ups and pull-ups and you know we'll just kind of touch base on the other side and part of me is saying well if you just found yourself a band and a kettlebell like I could make you the greatest program ever and you know, you'd be able to hold on to a lot of muscle mass and it's just not what they want right now. And it's not what I want. It's what they want. And you just kind of have to accept that that's mm. always the case, even if it doesn't look like that. Yep. Um, so Bryce, when we sort of put
2: all that stuff we've just said together and we, we sort of like, like, how would we say, like, how do we sum up what an athlete actually wants to get from our services as a coach? And then what does that mean? For the components of a really comprehensive training system.
1: It's, it's so different based on the athletes. You know, I have some athletes who come to me with questions on a weekly basis about training principles. And I have some athletes who just want the training. They don't really want to talk about a whole lot else. And I kind of have to fish for details. Some athletes give me more information on nutrition. Some give me less information on nutrition. So, I would love to say there's kind of a clear answer on what athletes want to get. Um, But, you know, if we go back to kind of self-determination theory, we know that athletes want to get better. They want to feel competent. They want to feel like they're getting better in some meaningful way, whether it's reps or body composition or, you know, just load on the bar or something. They want to feel like they've got some control and they probably want to feel like they have a sense of community and some support as well. And those are kind of three big pillars of, of being motivated. But outside of that, I've had so many lifters not be interested in the education side or really want you know to get touchy feely throwing up air quotes here for the podcast listeners. Um, some people just want by the numbers and that's fine too. Honestly, the touchy feeliness of my service in. has
2: gone down I mean, heaps since we've had to close gyms. I used to be the most hands-on personal trainer ever, but yeah, now I've had to cut all groping and just, just work on programming <laughs> and feedback. It's been very tough. <laughs> right, Alex probably had something valuable to add.
0: Yeah, I think, I certainly think you're right, Bryson, that everyone's after something slightly different. You know, someone might come to you with, you know, I want to improve my technique. Someone might come to you, I want to improve my body composition. Um, but I think the overarching thing is that everyone wants to get better. And that's kind of like, no, one's going to come to you and say, Oh, I just want to stay the same or I want to get worse. Like that's what they come to us for is the expertise and the system to improve. And it's just a matter of, you know, whether finding out whether we want to educate one person or whether we want to delve a little bit more into nutrition or whether we want to do, you know, jack of all trades and kind of handle everything but that comes down to the individual, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say these days, a lot of the athletes that you end up getting uh, are self-selected. You know, they, they see what you put out on the internet. Uh, You know, they see the kind of person that you are, they see what maybe your training is like, and they've got a rough idea of this is the type of of service I'm going to get. And that's a good thing because it means you're more likely to get people who are going to stick around and who, you know, when you ask them about what's going on outside the gym, they're not going to come to you and be like, what do you mean? Like, this is powerlifting training. Just tell me, (laughs) tell me about spotting, benching and deadlifting. Um, so I I think that's a good thing. And that kind of self-selection helps, helps everyone out.
2: Yeah. I've actually, I thought this was really bizarre, but more and more I've come around to your way of thinking Bryce with this, but I had a number of clients. I went through this phase. I would always ask my clients, you know, what prompted you to get in touch with me for training? and and when i was working at lift performance center i I went around asking a few over the course of about a week and like five or six were like oh you know i follow you on instagram and like you seem like a pretty like fun guy and i really like your dog and i was like (laughs) what the fuck's that got to do with anything Like, you've come to me wanting to get better at squatting and you like my french bulldog like it's
0: it's completely irrelevant i think that matters though dude to be honest like because you know, if someone's going to go to me versus you will like, they're going to get a similar service. They're going to get similar results and similar, similar
2: dog breed also.
0: And way better dog breed on my end. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. like, I've, but I feel like obviously the things that we've just spoken about with communication and relationship building and those kind of things, if you feel like you're going to get along better with one coach versus another, like that genuinely matters with yeah. how you buy in and how you adhere to training.
2: I think if you're like an intellectual and you've got like an appreciation for fashion, the arts, like fine literature, nice conversation.
0: Then you wouldn't go anywhere near Will.
1: (laughs) 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 That was a layout. (laughs) Bryce, what were you going to say? Yeah, just exactly that. Like when when people hire a coach, they're hiring a person. They're not hiring a machine, you know, and and a lot of the the qualities they think they're going to get out of improving are kind of transferred into what do I think of this person? And it's, it's weird. It doesn't make sense, but that's the world we live in.
2: Yeah. And it, like what you just said, even that, like when I look at my Instagram and the things that I write on, like my story or my posts or whatever, that people tend to share or write to me about and say, this was really helpful to me. Very often. It's not the stuff that's actually like, you know, the nitty gritty of training theory and physiology and shit like that. Like some people find that curious and it makes them think I'm smart. But when I write something about like, you know, this is how I was feeling, this is what I did and it made me feel better, or something where it's like, it's a purely emotional statement about like what training means to me, that's the type of shit that that people really like because it actually speaks to something in them, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to demonstrate some certain minimum level of competence with the nuts and bolts of training and after that you have to show who you are and uh, some people are going to like that and there's the type of people who want to work with you all right so alex if you can
2: just work on that minimum level of competence as a coach then you'd probably be sweet mate
0: yeah it's definitely holding me back well
2: <laughs> all right so uh, you guys are you guys are vicious and i love it <laughs> it's, we've both been cooped up for three or four weeks now and you know we don't we don't have an outlet to be mean to people like we normally do so So this is it. Um, That's great. All right. So we've got this idea of like, we want to give our athletes guidance so they can actually get better in whatever respect is important to them. They want a sense of social support and connectedness. They want to develop competency, um, things like that. So like putting that in the context of an actual coaching system, um, you know, we all work as online coaches and now everybody listening to this is probably delivering almost all their services online. Um, in terms of the nuts and bolts of an actual coaching system, what does that, what does that entail normally? How do we deliver services?
1: There, there's a lot of different ways. And I've seen people do this many different ways. So, you know, I, I won't say there's one correct way, but the way that I've kind of settled on is for athletes who do custom training cycles, I speak with them uh, live over video conference once a month. And for athletes who I'm doing weekly coaching with, Um, I'll have them record a vlog style video of them chatting about how the week went and I want to hear about, uh, the training. I want to hear about what was good, what was bad. And then almost more importantly, what's going on outside the gym? Um, how are things like sleep and stress and, you know, how's your girlfriend, how's your dog? Just give me a picture of, of your life this week and almost treat it as a little bit of a dear diary. And I do the same. I respond with a video about what's going on in my life. I talk about the training, um, the changes that I want to see the things that I've changed in, in the training technique, and then also respond to the stuff about what's going on, uh, outside. So it's a little bit of a replacement for what we might see in, uh, so if you pretend that you're a weightlifting coach and you're in the gym with an athlete who's training and there's a little bit of chatter uh, about, you know, life in between sets, And then there's the sets and you're watching the sets. It's kind of like a surrogate for that. So it takes the place of what we might see in person. And um, I've really enjoyed that. And that kind of strikes a balance of giving the athlete the freedom to do their training Monday through Saturday, and then also getting some feedback uh, before the next week rolls around.
2: And so what is it, um, what is it that drew you towards doing say like a weekly vlog as opposed to sending emails or, or having a live phone call with an athlete or any other avenue of communication?
1: It's um, it is how easy or hard it is and how much or little time it takes. So if like, I would love to do weekly calls with an athlete and uh, Joe from TSA does that with quite a few athletes, you know, back, back oh, so long ago when gyms were open, Um, you know, doing weekly calls with an athlete and they would just have a standing time and and they would meet and have a little 15 minute chat and Eric Bonhorn was doing the same thing. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, there's an absolute limit on the number of athletes you can do that with, you know, because there's only so many hours in a day. And once you're done with the call, you still have to program for the athlete and stuff like that. And on the other end, I feel like just pure text-based communication, I'm missing out on a lot of context cues when the athlete sends me some information and when I type, I just can't type that fast, man. It's just, it's so much easier to talk. Uh, and so either a voice recorded memo or just a live video of me talking gets more density of information in a smaller amount of time. Um, so that's kind of why I've avoided those two extremes. So Alex and up until very recently myself
2: operated pretty differently. Um, Alex am I correct in saying that you basically message your clients during the week as they train they'll send you updates sort of daily and you chat to them then.
0: yeah so I'll, I'll try and keep things a little bit more um, communicative throughout the week so I'll do I'll set myself times where I'll look at training videos and I'll respond as I go so I they kind of get that um, between session feedback and sometimes if I'm not doing anything it'll be during their own session which I think can be really helpful but yeah like you said um, setting aside the time to do that is really important. And obviously you can't be sitting on your phone replying to every single video you get sent because you just won't be able to get to all of them and you won't be able to do anything else. Um, but yeah, I tend to to do like three or four slots or five slots per week where I'll look at videos. So they'll be getting more constant feedback, but um, it's generally text-based and sometimes we'll do audio.
1: And so- I think it's a really cool way Uh, of doing things. Um, Like there's a coach that I know of who basically responds while someone is training and they basically get help with load selection and and technique Mm. in in session,
0: which is amazing. I I started off like that when I didn't have a lot of clients, but now it's just too hard to keep up with everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm. Sorry, I cut you off. Keep going.
1: Uh, no, no, that was kind of where I wanted to end that. Um, I wanted to hear what Will is doing before I respond. So, so I used to be
2: exactly like Alex, and actually, um, one of my longest-standing clients, John Paul Kauke. he said to Alex that the reason he hired me initially was because I had no clients and I'd have time to respond really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I did do that. Um, and when I started working with Bryce one of the things I realized about doing like a weekly check-in for myself was having that, like having a little bit of distance between my training and when I did my reflections and being able to look at my training week in a more like summative fashion meant that I was able to reconcile the little peaks and troughs that I saw day by day a bit better. And, and it also just helped me generally like put my training week in context and, you know, I became much less sensitive to, to like small errors um, in my training or like small areas in which I probably hadn't done as well as I could have. And like, I'm a very highly technical thinker generally and, and a reasonably technical coach. And a lot of my athletes um, are attracted to working with me because they feel that I've got like a lot of information to give them about how they go about lifting. But I find that if I'm, if I'm too constantly giving my athletes feedback and particularly like nitpicking little errors and stuff in their lifting, it almost causes like more self doubt on their part. Um, and so I've tried to actively like not completely withdraw that stuff, but make my conversations through the week with my athletes when they send me videos much more like, how are you feeling today? Like, you know, wow, that looks good. Like, well done. Keep going. Remember the things we've agreed to focus on for this session, whatever it is. And then at the end of each week now, I send out an email to all my athletes asking them to send me a short, like two to five minute um, video clip or audio clip of them, just telling me about their training week and about some stuff that was happening outside of it, a bit like what Bryce does. And I respond in kind as well. And also say like looking ahead to this week, Here are some things I want you to work on here. Are a couple of things that I saw in your training videos that let's focus on. And I find that having that extra bit of distance really helps. But because I've made my services more comprehensive as well, it's also taking up a bit more of my time. Um, so trying to sort of give both services without spending so much time on either that I'm like, I literally have two full-time jobs is, is kind of difficult, but I'm figuring it out.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think the weekly update serves a few key purposes. So if if you're getting feedback on a pretty regular basis, you get an amazing amount of communication, but the time that you have to really reflect on things. And I think things have more emotional impact and they get sent straight to the coach uh, versus if you have a little distance, like Will was saying, some of those peaks and valleys just even out a little bit and you get like a general sum of like, Oh, it was a pretty good week. Or it was a pretty bad week. And here's some of the things. Um, I will say the, the weekly updates are great. Um, however, when an athlete is in need, uh, and I mean, like a session has gone terribly wrong and they were supposed to max out and what was supposed to be an RPE seven is an RPE 10. And, you know, they're crying next to their bench press and they just feel lost and alone. Like you need to be there for the athlete. Um, Alex is smirking about (laughs) crying at bench press and eyeing me off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can can literally see the words on the tip of your tongue, Alex, just say it.
1: What were you going to (laughs) say?
0: You just said it for me, dude. I don't need to say it.
1: (laughs) Sorry. Go on Bryce. (laughs) So those are the times when, you know, the distance and a weekly summary fall very, very short you know, and and the urgency is all that matters and you need to be there. So um, those are the cases where being prompt matter a lot. And obviously the day of competition too, stuff like that. So I think um,
2: like what you said to me when we started on our phone call was kind of like, if there's any, like most things are not so urgent that we need to talk immediately. But if there is something that like comes up where, you know, there's a real problem or you need me to fix something on the sport or like Or whatever, just like, no, I'll answer as soon as I can. Just message me like I'm in your pocket. And when you you say that, it gives people the sense that like the coach is always there as a resource that you can reach to. But by saying like, I want you to basically, you know, run free for a week and then let me go, you ask them to sort of develop a bit of independence and do some problem solving for themselves. And that's the type of stuff that actually makes people better long term, because instead of just leaning on you, whenever there's a problem, they start saying, well, like, I'm going to make decisions, then review how constructive they were after the fact and become like a more skilled trainee, as well as becoming stronger.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, mom's not here to cut the crust off my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I'm going to have to figure out how to cut the crust off myself. Like those decisions where you get a little bit of freedom and you, you have to make some decisions for yourself. Those make you a better, a better lifter, I think. And Mm -hmm. you know, easy ways are like auto regulation and you know, Here's some bounds for choosing a weight. You choose the right one. And then, you know, we can assess afterwards whether you made the right choice or not. Here's a little bit more freedom the next time, you know, just letting out the leash a little bit at a time.
0: And like, I've, I've found the difference between um, doing uh, during session feedback and then just doing post session feedback is that they kind of figures those things out for themselves. Like if I'll be replying to someone during their session, like between sets, which is pretty rare these days, but if that happens, it's often like they're, Kind of expecting something from me, but then when they don't have me there, they figure it out on their own, and they get, we get to the same place anyway. And I think it's more meaningful for the lifter to discover that on their own, because they mm-hmm. I think they learn about what they need to be feeling um, and how things should feel versus being told how they should feel.
1: Yeah, and if we're comparing this to like the gold standard of working with someone in person. Um, there are those coaches who kind of hyper-analyze on a set-by-set basis in person too and I've always admired the coaches who know the right thing to say and exactly when to say it in person you know and, and uh, if you've got a great lifter and they their squat looks beautiful and they know how to squat you don't have to tell them how to squat they know it and so it's it's knowing exactly what and when the right thing to say is.
2: Yeah, I think extending extending this like idea of feedback as well to even just teaching people how to lift. I mentioned this recently. I, I did a QA and a on Twitch. I'm just going to plug my own Twitch channel here because no one watches it. Um, but I did <laughs> did a I watch it on-, on
0: Monday? It was good.
2: Yeah, it's because it was about you. I analyzed some of Alex's lifting and so I think he was my <laughs> only viewer. Um, but no, somebody asked me um, asked me on my Twitch about um, training training like new lifters and I used to be really bad at it and I've I've said to Alex so many times like I just I didn't enjoy teaching people how to lift because I was almost like where do I start when they're doing everything wrong and the way that I got a lot better at it was was actually just letting them make a few more mistakes and like obviously like giving them lifts with constraints that like move them towards something that like roughly what we'd like to see but then actually just letting them lift and kind of figure it out a little bit and like chatting with them after sets rather than getting entirely in their head made them like way, way better. And now I've got a few like pretty new lifters on my books who are progressing in leaps and bounds because I resist the urge to like, you know, be the coach telling them what to do all the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, that's huge. So there's kind of a few different ways of having someone learn something. And one of them is to tell them what you want to change. And the other is to ask them how that felt, you know, like, you know, how, how did your hips feel on that one? Or, you know, where did you feel the pressure in your feet um, on that one? And I think like so much of powerlifting, I think of technique change and we're kind of getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but I'm here. So I may as well just carry it out.
0: Yeah, keep going, man.
1: With, with technique change specifically um, early on, when you're working with a new athlete, it's big changes, it's big and fast changes. And after that uh, it's athlete driven, small changes. Like there's some things that I would, I can't see on video, you know, despite my best efforts, the athlete was like, Oh, that was a bad rep. And, you know, reps three and four were great. You know, I really felt like I was, uh, you know, kind of in my comfort zone and and I was kind of pressing through the middle of my foot and I look at the video and I can't tell the difference at all between those reps. And I just kind of have to trust the athlete and say, well, fantastic. You know, great. Um, and those kind of athlete, driven technique changes are more likely to stick because the athlete figured it out uh, and more likely to be repeatable. And they know better than you because they're in their own skin and they're in their own body and they know their own morphology. So uh, those are my favorite kind of technique changes. Yeah. And I think like just thematically
2: what you're describing as well is like, is the coach being willing to sort of give the athlete enough rope and enough freedom to like self-discover some things and not insisting on just being like the source of all knowledges and the driver of all changes that takes relinquishing, just a bit of control to the athlete, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. So what about when we talk about like how we actually communicate a program to athletes, what are some ways, what are some ways in which like, you know, the manner of program delivery and the language we use and stuff in it might impact the athlete's experience? Uh,
1: Good question. So are, are you talking about like when you're describing the program to the athlete?
2: yeah sure or like even the spreadsheet itself any of that stuff
1: uh for describing the program i think the athletes kind of feed off how excited you are about the program you know so when you're talking about the training for the athlete you're talking about you know the reasons why you program things i think some of that stuff is is important or i'm really excited for you to get into this it's going to be difficult but i think you're really going to benefit from that you know just micro moments where you can have the athlete buy in, uh, just a little bit more and, and not faking it, but genuinely because you actually are excited. Um, but for the nuts and bolts of uh, training, there's, I don't know, infinite ways that you can describe what someone's doing. You know, whether we're talking rep ranges or top sets or work up to RP, you can use casual language. You can be very precise. And your method is your method. And you just kind of have to figure out, what resonates best with you and how can you best communicate that to your athletes? And so if you were
2: to describe your own style of like, of conveying programs and writing things down and stuff, um, how would you do so? And what has sort of led you to use the
1: tools that you use? Uh, I'll start off uh, using a blend of RPEs and percentages. Uh, I like using a blend because if, for some reason, the athlete isn't auto-regulating upwards, or not making progression on the RPE-based stuff. We still know the percentages are trending upwards, so we still know they're handling a little bit more weight on a week-to-week basis um, on the non-main lift stuff, so accessory-type stuff. I'm much more comfortable using rep ranges, ranges for RPEs, um, even ranges for sets. You know, three to five sets based on how you feel because it's less uh, less accurate. So that's kind of my starting point, and then if I find the athlete is consistently blowing RPEs, you know, I'll kind of rein it in and give them fixed loads. Or if I find the athlete is really soaking it up and making a lot of progress, I'll either give them bigger jumps on percentages or, uh, just bigger RPE ranges just to kind of maximize the training process they're going through. And Alex, what are a couple of
2: features in how you, you send athletes programs that you think like really help them?
0: Um, there's a few things that I do. So I have a little, um, at the top of each training block it says goal of training block. And I often write a couple of sentences about, you know, we, you know, for instance, all right, we're going to do 12 weeks of off season training. It's not going to resemble much powerlifting, but stick with it because it's going to help you in the long run. Um, give them a little bit of in- information, a little bit of context about why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and kind of like pump them up and get them excited about that training block. Um, and then I have also have an instructions one, which will We'll talk about like um, you know, generally it's just like focus on keeping technique, uh something about rest times, something about um some other context stuff. And then under each exercise I'll have a little description of how I want that exercise performed, which I think's help with us which I think helps because it'll often be like, you know, you should feel this, um, you know, don't be concerned about this, focus on cues, blah, 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 whatever. I think for those three things probably help the most with buy-in and just adherence.
2: So for myself, I got to say my spreadsheets are pretty ugly. Alex has always been giving me grief about them. So one of my current projects is improving them. Um, but something that I've found um, about Bryce's sheets, I find really impressive is that they they kind of encourage you to log your training, like the actual structure of the sheet itself encourages you to log your training there's little places for you to write notes it prompts you to say what was good about this session at the end of each session so you always leave with like a positive thought in your mind and even like the structure of the spreadsheet and the colors and stuff used on it actually sort of like prompt your engagement um and it was one of those like looking at them was one of those sort of moments where you have a little epiphany um for myself where I was like just the manner in which I deliver a program to an athlete is going to fundamentally change the way in which they choose to engage with it. Cause I have some athletes who report to me every single training day and you know, they're super excited to talk about their training. But when I look at their spreadsheets online, they never fill them in and I look at my spreadsheet and I go, well, I wouldn't fill that in either. Cause it's just like a black and white sheet with empty cells here and there. And it's ugly. And, um, and because there aren't those, those extra cues to like prompt the reflective, reflective skills that I want from my athletes you know incorporating them is something that I want to do to make my service better so there's a couple of things I'd tip like tip my hat to Bryce for I think
1: when I when I designed that um, kind of the the goal for that was to make it like a training journal that you would have in front of you but better you know so it'll still give you things that Excel does like estimated one rep maxes and you know, has your training there, so you don't have to write it down. But it's a little bit more like a journal in a constructive way. Because so many people, despite all the advancements of Google Sheets and Excel and stuff, continue to use pen and paper, because there's something they love about that. And I wanted to bring a little bit of that into Google Sheets. Ultimately, I think you need a web application to really do it right. But um, it's, it's not a bad place to be. I got to say
2: one thing I didn't realize about your program cause I didn't watch the, um, the YouTube tutorial. Sorry. Is that okay. LS RPE tab, which stands for last set RPE. I just thought it was a capital I. So it was like, did this is RPE set. <laughs> <laughs> so so I've been rating for set RPE because I just thought that's what, you know, is RPE. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, so you can throw out the past 10 weeks of training logs. They've been useless, but but all be better yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Alex you had something to say.
0: Yeah, you mentioned um training journals, Bryce. I think that's um, a good thing to bring up. And what I used to do for a long time is literally write down each session, tick off my stats as I go, write in my as I was going in my book. Um, but I've actually forced my coach to start using Google Sheets this week because mm. he sends out a weekly email just like just looks like a word document, like day one day, two all the way down and I've just filled it into a um, template for him and shared it with him so he can steal the template (laughs) here. Do this. (laughs) Yeah. And I've started it. I started it this week and um, I've really enjoyed like after each set, going in my phone and like writing how many reps I got or writing what my IPA was. I think it's like something um, sort of, you almost get a sense of accomplishment when you like complete a set or you complete a session.
1: Yeah. So I'll tell you guys, like if, if I had, Unlimited resources where I would take this is like way further than than where you are right now because there's so many things that you could pick up on and uh, Respond to automatically you without you even having to do it, you know, so if, if an athlete Hits a PR or something like that throw confetti on the screen and say like hey this is your best triple on safety bar squats or something like that or you know at the bottom like hey, this is your 16th week with your coach, like congrats, uh, you know, here's a a message from your coach or like, Hey, happy birthday or something like just kind of automatic stuff that pops up. That's motivating. Bryce, Um, I'm not shitting you. I'm, I'm not shitting you. I've sent an email
2: with my mate who does Google sheets programming, asking for help to do exactly that because I'm creating a thing that tracks people's PBs in their chosen lifts. And so when it, like, when they hit a PB, it's going to say, you know, you just hit a new PB on this thing, like we'll log it here, like, congrats. Okay. That's that actually jumped out of me because I thought if you can automate all this other shit, automating that's great. You know, I've got yeah.
0: lifters who have added tabs to their spreadsheet with all of their rep maxes for every single lift and every variation.
1: And that kind of stuff can be really motivating. Like, you know, I I have to wonder, like, you know, oh what was my five rep max on this? Like, is this a PR? And it'd be nice to just have it come up and say that and and mm. Having the Berkman system uh, or something like that, uh, you know, makes people more likely to stay with you if they're getting all this kind of stuff too. And on a separate note, the gamifying of, uh, of training is a really interesting thing. There's a lot of research on the fact that gamifying things can increase motivation. You know, like you get points every time you log a training session correctly and you get to spend those points on uh, a free t-shirt or something like that. You know,
2: there's a, um, Something else when you spoke about, um, I actually don't know if you mentioned this, but it just brought it to mind, was you can also use in Google Sheets, you can use it as like an API to bring in like information from other programs. I found this out this morning. And so you could actually program your Google Sheets to like display a celebration GIF of like, you know, a kid giving thumbs up or something for your clients when they do a sessions successfully, um, if you wanted. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> but if it, I'm thinking about it very deeply, though. I just thought it would be really cool if, like, yeah, if you did actually have funny little cat gifs and stuff come up to celebrate. it would be fantastic. I'm fully in already. Yeah. This is where I've been syncing my past, like, four days. Is Initially, it was like, <laughs> oh, I better make this spreadsheet's pretty usable. And now I'm like, how can I make it show a gif <laughs> when somebody presses log? Um, Bryce, another thing that you... I've brought this up in a couple of check-ins. Another thing that you do in your programs um, that I think is interesting as well is, um, is you'll, often you'll, you'll prescribe something and you'll give, rather than like a rep range, say, you'll give an RPE range. So you'll say, do three sets of eight on incline bench press at RPE six to eight. And, and what I said was really useful about that um, was that that flexibility in prescription like almost, almost engenders like flexibility of mindset in the athlete because there's pretty broad bounds around what the training that you have to do is that, that is like correct per the program. Whereas when your prescription is too exact, say you say do three sets of eight at RPE eight on the dot. If you do a set and you're like, you know, that set was RPE seven or like that set was eight and a half, it's very easy to start thinking like, fuck, I totally blew it. Like, you know, this is a waste of a training session. Uh And so I think in some ways, like the way in which we choose to give a prescription, which might actually fundamentally be the exact same thing, you know, written five or six different ways, but the way in which we choose to convey it can actually really matter from the athlete's perspective in terms of how they view their own training. Is that something you give much thought to?
1: Yeah, I would say kind of thinking deeply about the philosophy that I try to do when I program stuff for the athlete is what's the minimum amount of instruction I can give and still get what I'm after out of it, you know? And then there's probably, um, you know, the difference between six to eight RP, like as long as we're somewhere within that range, uh, across an average of sets, then we're going to get the same outcome overall for not blowing the RPE too much. Then, I'll just tell them that's the range that we're after, you know, or seven to nine. If I want things to be a little bit heavier, or, you know, that's like I mentioned on the sets, you know, three to five sets, or choose a tricep exercise of your choice. What's the, what's the bare minimum instruction I can give and get the most outcome out of. And if someone wants me to be more specific, I'm capable of that too. Um.
2: <clears throat> so what about some other soft skills in coaching, particularly online coaching that we might have to consider? Is there anything that jumps out for you?
1: Uh, yes. I think the communication piece is so big. Um, and like, you know, communication, like we're talking about right now, this is the easy stuff, but how to criticize someone in a way that they'll respond productively is uh, a really important skill. You know, like, uh, your squad is shit is probably not the way that you want to open up with, you know, you want to tell them, you know, like the sandwich method, for instance, tell them something you like about it, give them a criticism and then give them another compliment or something like that is, is one way of going about it. But how do you approach sensitive topics in, uh, kind of a kind way that shows that you still care about them and the outcome? Those sensitive ways are, are tough, but important.
0: Let's uh, use a practical example, Bryce. How have you gone about the sensitive topic of Will's bench press?
2: Do you want me to mute myself quickly so I can't hear and you can just tell the audience? Uh,
1: No, it's, it's actually been really good. Like Will's, Will's great with kind of responding uh, to training and just, you know, running the approach. And uh, I would say a better example is just grip strength for Will. Like he's been pretty honest about, you know, where he's at and okay, well, here's a change we're going to make to that. And, and this is when it matters and this is when it doesn't matter. And, um, I know that like, strength-wise, you're good for a 300, and, and grip-wise, we just need those lovely hands to hold onto the barbell. So
2: Bryce's first bit of feedback to me on my bench press, Alex, to answer more truthfully, now that Bryce has given the party line to the audience, more truthfully, he said, wow, what was that? It'd be really handy if you could make your arms about six inches shorter. <laughs> 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 Oh, great. That's exactly the type of brutal honesty and actionable feedback I need. Um, I'll, pay for <laughs> I'll four be months back when my arms are, uh, are six inches shorter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been working on it ever since. Um, so something, I used to train a lady and she's a teacher and she, so she does remote education and she works with a lot of kids who also have like educational and learning difficulties. And I'd mm-hmm. ask her a lot, um, I'd ask her a lot about pedagogy. And she said that um, that the the literature around teaching people were in terms of like delivering criticism was that your criticism should always be task oriented and not person oriented, but your praise should also be like that. So like when when an athlete sends you something good, you shouldn't say like you know wow Alex you're a great bloke for deadlifting 285. You should say like that was a very good deadlift Alex. And then likewise when Alex sends you his 285 kilo deadlift. I don't say like, you know, Alex, you are shit. That was, you know, your background at heaps. I can say, Hey, like, you know, your backgrounded a little bit more than I'd have liked in this deadlift. Um, you know, and we can work on it in X and Y way. And so by like separating the person from the task, you can often speak more constructively in both directions. Is that something that rings true to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's, something that makes the athlete less likely to generalize themselves as either a good person or a bad person when things go well or, or not well for sure.
2: Yeah. Although of course, like fundamentally the thing that makes you either a good or bad person as a powerlifter is your performance.
1: Right. Right. If you're, if you don't have good performances, then you're a bad person.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's what I say to my clients is I work with good lifters and good people. And if you're not both, then see you later. You know, (laughs) that's, that's tended to not work particularly well up till now. Just keep, so, that, you know, debit,
0: keep that debit running.
2: Yeah, 100%, Maybe you got it. Um, no, another one is another one is like concentrating our feedback on on like the attitudinal approach to training as opposed to the technical one. Do you think there's times where maybe it would benefit your clients more for you to just say like, you know, to speak about their effort and praise or possibly criticize that as opposed to focusing just on their technical execution?
1: Um, I've had cases where athletes have, well, continuously beat themselves up for, uh, bad performances. And even when things are going well, they tend to be the type of person who can find something wrong in it and not really kind of celebrate the wins. And, uh, it's, it's really kind of a short few weeks of seeing that where I've got to speak up and, and say, Hey, like, why are you beating up yourself so much for what's obviously going well and going the right direction? Those cases are kind of few and far between, but that really makes a difference kind of in the lifter in the term. Um, so sometimes it's not just about what the lifter is doing, but their attitude towards lifting itself or they're the kind of person who always complains about uh, training and like, look, you signed up for this, you know, you're, you're paying me for coaching. You're liking the coaching, you know, you're staying with me and you're doing this, but you know, every time we do eights you're complaining about it or every time pause deadlifts comes around, you're complaining about it. And let's get to the bottom of, of why that is. And if it's really so bad, let's make an adjustment. But, um, you know, there's, there's nothing so bad that you should be complaining about this on a regular basis.
2: Yeah. I find sometimes when people, um, when people like kind of frequently complain about training like that specifically when it's like context driven, like they always whinge about AIDS or they hate training light. Sometimes that is my fault as a coach. And it's that I haven't like adequately conveyed to them the purpose of what they're doing or the benefits of it. And sometimes you've got to sort of like recalibrate what is a training success in the athlete's mind to actually line up with what you're attempting to do, because if your values aren't like sufficiently like congruent, then the athlete's going to be like, why the fuck am I wasting my time doing this? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, slow tempo light pause shit when, you know, I'm here to sling iron around and get stronger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's this perception of of powerlifting training that uh, it needs to be difficult in order to be progressive. And that's an attitude that's fueled by not only us coaches, but kind of the industry as a whole and what gets shared around and, and, that's its own problem as well, but you're absolutely right. That you kind of have to align your interests and just tell the athlete why they're doing things and what success actually looks like. It's a good point.
0: So if, if you were to get someone in that context, Bryce, who let's say to use your example, hates doing eights and they complain about eights all the time, you explain them the purpose of the eights and they still complain. What would the next step be?
1: Sevens. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, you, you could do that and say uh, there's a few different approaches. You could say, look, this, this is only your training approach for a little bit of time and, you know, we'll be done with these soon enough. So let's just kind of, uh, suck it up for now and just realize this is, you know, getting you to your goals or the meet in the middle approach, which is, you know, the sevens or sixes and just add a set or something if, like, there's nothing magic about ACE, just like there's nothing magic about, uh, rip toes fives. Um,
2: Come on bad. now, we're pretty liberal here, but you don't say shit Come like that on. on our podcast.
1: <laughs> you get off our podcast. Um, yeah, training is flexible enough that nothing is so concrete that that it needs to be in someone's training approach. So you could go that way too. Um, so uh, there's Bryce, a bargaining. Can I give you, yeah, can I give ahead.
2: you just like some constructive feedback on your coaching. Yeah, please. And this is like deadly serious now. Um, probably the one time I've been really dissatisfied with something you did. So we did testing and it was a couple of days before the gym was closed in Australia. And I went back in to start a new training cycle. And it was on the day that due to COVID-19, gyms were going to close in Australia. So I was dealing with like a lot of confusion and anxiety about like the world around me and not really like not really understanding my places or anything anymore. I looked at my spreadsheet and I had two sets of 11, Nobody programs a lemons dude. Like how much
1: more confused do you reckon you could have made me on the spot? <laughs> oh man, I, I don't know where that was going. But if, if that's the dissatisfaction, then that's, that's okay with me. Um, right. But maybe, maybe my thought was, I don't want to give him 12s uh, and I don't want to give him 10s. So here's the point in between.
0: <laughs> Just do your lemons and drink your milk, Will.
1: <laughs> yeah pro- probably needlessly exact for that especially given the context oh man that was terrible
2: but no seriously i don't think <laughs> nobody should be programming 7s 9s 11s 13s 14 doesn't exist anything between 16 and 19 and then over 20 stupid so true. like, there's certain yep. numbers that you just don't do and
1: that was one of them yeah yeah that really upset but, me man well there's there's that joke about uh what is it eight to 12 is for hypertrophy and, and, uh, four to six is for strength. So yeah. sevens, you just make no gains.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you just get worse, you do sevens. Um, right. what about, what about like creating community and support networks? You said that was one of the sort of like fundamental needs when you spoke about the hierarchy of needs or self-determination or whatever it was. This is uh,
1: this is difficult. Um, So I would love to have kind of an active community of TSA athletes all sharing their training and engaging in stuff. Um, But I've not found that people really want that or respond to that, you know, whether it's on Facebook or we tried Slack for a teeny bit. I tried, I tried creating my own social network with this tool called Mighty Mouse one time. And, and uh, I don't know. I I don't know if people's attention uh, at least, that I've tried is kind of close enough that I can create that sense of community. I think people want primarily their relationship with their coach and then with their friends and not really to have like a a community of athletes that are also being coached by the same company. And that's fine. And I think I've just come to realize that when we're talking about a sense of community, uh, at least that I've been able to figure out that sense of community means uh, a few people close to you, and then a few people in a bigger circle around you and then a few people in a bigger circle around you. And that you want close ties, you want medium ties, you want long ties, but it can't be forced. It kind of has to be a little bit more natural.
2: Yeah. I'd say that sort of, um, that gels in my experience as well. Like I work with fewer athletes obviously than TSA combined. Um, but I found that on my private athletes, Facebook group, like, not that many are wanting to share videos there. They still, you know, like chatting to me and when they get on a zoom call with each other, they all want to talk and stuff, but really people do seem to rely on the people who are actually close to them in person or their training partners, whoever coaches them more so than more so than the community around a coach. Is that similar for you, Alex?
0: Yeah. I mean, I seem to have a team that, I mean, most of my team are in New South Wales so that they do actually know each other. So that makes it a bit easier for them to connect. But it seems to be just the type of person that it is. And some people just want to be part of the community. And whenever we do like, whenever there is a post in the group or whenever we do a big video call, those people who are interested in developing the community are always the ones who are there. So I don't know. I feel like you can't force the individual onto it, but there are always going to be people who are willing to sort of add to the community.
1: Yeah. I think it's it's probably a team effort in the way that if you had maybe five athletes who every time someone new came in, they said, Hey, welcome. You know, how's your training going? You know, hope you have fun with those new eights. Oh, safety squat bar. I've tried that. That's crazy. Um, Just kind of give them a few pieces to bite onto that welcome them in the community. That would make it so much better. And so I've created a bunch of bots that do that for me. Now I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) We definitely, we definitely used to have that because the gym that Will and I used to work out that closed when you guys started coaching, um, we had a few people who would always be there who were coached by me, who would sort of welcome in new people. They would see me training a new person or they'd see a new gym member and they'd kind of welcome them to the community. And it kind of was that sort of relationship that you were talking about just then.
2: Yeah. Got you in yeah. a bit of trouble though, eventually because like people would come in and say, Oh, you know, like week one, day one, I bet you're doing like three sets of five at 70% just like everybody else. And, you know, because you were just copy pasting programs, you, you got in a bit of shit, didn't you Alex? <laughs> <laughs> And that's how I built my business. It was unreal. Thank you, um, Bryce. Moving on to something very important, but probably rarely spoken about um, with online coaches is like, what about the way in which we actually structure things like pricing and you know how we bill our athletes and stuff? How much does that impact? Do you think their experience with uh, you?
1: That's a good question. So, I wanted to bring this two different directions. Number one is that. The quality of your services in some way is inversely related to the amount of time that you spend with each athlete, which puts a cap on the number of athletes that that you can work with. So you kind of have to decide, I'm the type of athlete who wants to do a volume-based coaching model where I just coach a ton of athletes and I have a little bit less connection with each of them. Do I want to be the type of athlete who has a greater connection? And as a result, I have to have less athletes. And that's in some ways going to determine how how you price your services. Um, so you can actually live and, and make a living. Um, but I found that the less frequently an athlete has to look at how much they're paying for coaching, um, the better experience they're going to have and the higher likelihood they're going to stay with you as a coach. And part of this is just looking at how many services we have that we pay for on a monthly basis that we've absolutely forgotten about, you know, because, you know, it just comes out automatically out of your bank account and, and, you know, you just continue enjoying the service and, and, and that's fine. So we used to send out invoices every month that the athlete would click and respond to. And part of the move to creating recurring monthly billing was out of convenience. Like I don't want to send out these invoices every month that I'm just creating anyways on the same exact day. Let me automate that. And part of it is just to put it out of the minds of, uh, of athletes a little bit more. It's the same money, but I think, um, having the recurring automatic element of it makes it a little bit easier for everyone involved. And yeah. it's, it's obviously a, a touchy, touchy subject for sure. Sorry, will go ahead.
2: I was going to say my, like one of my big gripes with fitness, and I'm sure there's like counter arguments to my opinion with this, but one of the big gripes I have is with the idea of like packaging services in like say a 12 week block and asking for a big payment upfront and then having to resell to people. And part of it is I think it just raises like the barrier to entry enormously. And I get that like people probably think that means you get more buy-in from somebody if they're willing to commit a large amount of money up front. But also the idea of like developing a really productive relationship with somebody over like three months and then having to go back into the hard sell to them to get them to stay with you as a coach. Um, to me, just it just seems a little bit off and it seems like it seems to run contrary to the type of relationship that you try and develop Um yeah, to have to sort of constantly revisit selling. So I've always preferred the idea of having debits run, you know, however frequently they do. Alex, do you have something to say there?
0: No, no, no I completely agree with you. Um, I used to get a payment each time a new block would be in and I've kind of switched to monthly debit um, and it's just automated. And there's been, you know, there's like you said, Bryce, the same money. It's just a lot more convenient. And it's also like, like you said, also like we kind of, don't want them to be thinking about the money all the time. So it's kind of like almost hidden, like the money's coming out, but it's just part of their life. And it's just kind of embedded in the rest of their expenses.
2: Yeah. I have no idea where I'm going to go with this analogy, Bryce, you probably have something useful to say this isn't, but there's something a little bit analogous in my mind. And I'm going to say this really like honest to God, handle my heart straight in front. I've never visited any type of a sex worker. But in my head, like the idea of visiting a sex worker and then paying them after seems to be like your experience would just be much, much worse, right? Than actually having a genuine intimate relationship with somebody because Mm -hmm. you've gone from getting something that supposedly you wanted and is meaningful to you and then being like, oh shit, this is a financial transaction. Right. And likewise, I just don't think that having like a pay per service model as a coach, obviously I'm not sleeping with any of my athletes. I'm like Alex who chose to marry one of his. Um... (laughs) but but like having a really pay-per-service model to me like I said it just seems to it seems to create an experience that isn't like a this person genuinely cares about me because they care about me thing it's a this person cares about me because I pay them thing and I just don't think you want that
1: yeah it's it's so strange in powerlifting coaching because if we look at a lot of professional team sports uh, the money, like the athletes don't ever handle or think about the coach getting paid. It's handled at the organizational level. Mm -hmm. You know, the the team pays the coach and the athletes get scouted and they get chosen for the team and they play for the team and, and that's it. They don't have to worry about, uh, how the coach is getting compensated. And you know, that's, that's true for a lot of team sports. When it comes to individual sports, it's still to some extent handled by by teams a lot of times you know like team usa's weightlifting coach pays the weightlifting coach and well it used to be that way and and team usa's weightlifting kind of fell fell apart a little bit but it's a weird spot to be where the athlete directly has to pay the coach um so yeah we're in this we're in this interesting place uh when it comes to that i will say like the model of just the monthly coaching is is just one model we used to do this thing where we had the athlete pay like a setup fee at the start that was uh, higher and then a lower monthly cost. And, and the idea there was to just basically make sure someone was serious, that they weren't just gonna hop on monthly for a month or two and then uh, just cancel services. So almost creating a barrier to entry was the, the tactic there.
2: I think I've probably worked with just guessing like 50 or 60 athletes in the past couple of years um you know of which maybe like 45 have been pretty long term and a few have been like they only wanted to work with me for a few months from the outset but I think I've had two in two years who actually come and see me for an assessment gotten a program and then before their next session said I don't want to do this anymore and left like that doesn't seem to be That doesn't seem to be something that's an enormous problem for me. And maybe it's because my level of visibility isn't so great that I'm getting complete, like Yahoo's just knocking on my door. It tends to be people who actually want to work with me, but that's rarely been a big problem. Has it been one for you, Alex?
0: No, I haven't had that happen to me, you know, since the fitness first days when we're in a commercial gym. Like that's just not been the way things are.
1: And actually it hadn't happened to us either, which is kind of why we switched away from that, you know, but we realized, well, this isn't really a problem anymore. And, and now it's it's serving as a barrier and we don't want it to be a barrier. So we got rid of it. And so what about, you know, you say like monthly coaching is one option that you guys offer.
2: What made you also decide to offer just um, just like custom training cycles without that level of contacts that you otherwise have?
1: It was, it's a few reasons. One, we think that a lot of people want, good training that's tailored just for them, uh, but they don't need uh, communication on a regular basis with a coach, or they don't want to pay for communication on a regular basis with a coach. So we wanted we wanted a way that we could still get people something created just for them, um, but not have them feel like money was a barrier. So this is targeting a lot of uh, college kids or, you know, people with, uh, you know, low incomes who just want Good coaching, and they don't just want to go find a free template and run a free template. They want something that's tailored for them. So it's it's really the same exact level of coaching. It's just without the weekly feedback.
2: Yeah, and similarly, like I have, I set up a squad powerlifting coaching service um, near the start of this year, which obviously I intended to run from Lift Performance Center, which then shut, so that was a bit upsetting. Um, but I set up the squad thinking a similar thing, thinking like, can I offer a service that has a lot of the essential parts of my one-to-one coaching service but in a way that is less demanding of my time and therefore that I can offer more cheaply because something I've realized is a large number of people who are interested in powerlifting are also, like you said, students and things like that, where they don't have very high disposable income. So being able to offer something to meet that price point was important to me, but then it it made me sort of say, what are the essential parts of my service and what are less so, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about efficiency with time, this is the last question that we'd planned for you. Um, how are some ways that coaches can be more efficient with the services that they that they provide? And to what degree is that like inverse relationship between time spent on athletes and the value that they get um,
1: concrete? If if there's one tip I could give here, it's if it's something that you're doing repetitively, uh and it doesn't involve creativity, find a way to automate it if at all possible. Um, Because what you want ultimately is to be as clear headed and as attentive when the athlete needs you with the feedback that, that you need to be. You know, you want the technology to get out of the way, you want the nuts and bolts of, you know, formatting stuff in google sheets to get out of the way sending training to the athlete all that kind of boring stuff out of the way and you just want to be able to to listen to the athlete and see the athlete and respond to their feedback Uh, automate everything associated with billing you can automate reminders if you can uh you know delivering training all that kind of stuff so that you can be a better coach um and i think if you do that that doesn't mean that you're giving the athlete less value that actually makes you more valuable because you're not thinking about that other stuff
0: mm, more time to spend in actual coaching yeah yeah
2: uh, i think that's a really salient point to end on bryce thank you very much we're going to take a very quick break and then we're going to hit you with our new segment which is underrated overrated properly rated
0: Welcome back to weekly weights with Bryce Lewis. We're going to hit Bryce now with our new game, overrated, underrated, properly rated. Bryce, you ready? I'm ready. All right, I'm going to go first. So my topic is Gino the announcer, overrated, underrated, properly rated.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Okay, I think Gino is properly rated. Gino is really well liked and I think for a good reason. He does a great job. He lives and breathes powerlifting. He tours around the country like every weekend. And I haven't found anyone who does something exactly like what he does. But at the same time, the people understand that. So I think he's properly graded. So for Bryce, for people who
2: are maybe less familiar with who Gino is, can you just describe him as a character?
1: Yeah, Gino is a uh, tall powerlifting announcer who brings a lot of energy, but most importantly, you'll know it's Gino because he dresses in tight leather pants, uh, eyeliner, and uh, big flamboyant jackets with tail coats, uh, and fluffy frilly white button up t-shirts. And that's his persona. And that's how he shows up to, to every event. And is it true? I heard
2: his origin story was something like a meat director saw him commentating, like something like girls' volleyball was, or whatever. It was volleyball,
0: yeah, field. it was volleyball.
2: Um, and just thought, this guy's the best announcer. I'll, I'll ask him to do powerlifting. Is that true? I've also heard the same story, yeah. So, in my opinion, Chino um, is properly rated by anybody who is currently involved in powerlifting and knows of him. Like, everybody loves him, highly appreciated in my opinion, the best fun commentator at powerlifting comps by a mile. Like he's, he's good fun. He gets the crowd involved. He makes powerlifting more exciting. And then anybody who isn't involved in powerlifting or hasn't seen Gino announced massively underrates him. And they walk in and like immediately think, oh, there's a bit of novelty from this guy. But within like mm-hmm. an hour, they think he's the best dude in the world.
0: I'm going to uh, uh, rustle some feathers here. Ruffle okay, some feathers okay. here. I think he's overrated. Shut up. Why? And I'll I'll tell you why. It's all like, it's all a bit, a little bit too much from Gino, and it takes away from, in many times, the competitive aspect of comps, Mm -hmm. where he doesn't mention like, this list for the lead or this list for second or this and this. When, what he tends to mention most and what he gets the most excited about are like the particular numbers that are excited, exciting to him, like the six six six, or world records. And in the context of world records, he doesn't give enough like context for the record. Like if he'll give the sub junior world record, the same amount of attention that he would like an open record.
2: So I'm going and he to doesn't,
0: and he doesn't decipher the difference between the two.
2: I'm going to make a conditional offer to you, Alex. And I'm hoping Bryce will go halves with me on this. I will pay for your transport and accommodation to international powerlifting competitions. If you agree, to dress as like a drag queen pirate and, <laughs> and announce in exactly Gino's fashion, but just with more context around the competitions.
0: I'm what not saying that I, I'm not saying that I would be better.
2: No, I don't think so either.
0: I wouldn't be better, <laughs> but I feel like there are people who are better,
1: such as. So, so I will say, I actually, um, yeah, we we went to IPF Worlds in Dubai, and uh, by the way, these days the IPF hates Gino um they they absolutely hate Gino and Gino is no longer allowed to announce at IPF competitions
0: oh really I so didn't
1: that. yeah is that because so, of world
2: powerlifting or
1: no it's because the IPF thinks that Gino is unprofessional and that he just uh doesn't belong uh, at the international stage and you know IPF you know um uh you know they want IOC recognition, they want powerlifting to be an Olympic sport, and they see Gino as something that's preventing them from getting there, because Gino, you know, is obsessed with 666, and, you know, he's, he's not professional, so to speak, and so they made a decision, and um, to their credit, they had this British uh, announcer who was doing a very, very good job uh, at, at Dubai, and I, I really enjoyed him. The energy was... Different, um, but he was still getting the audience uh, excited, and and, uh, he was great. Missing a little bit of the soul, you know, that Gino brings, but uh, did a great job. I think, I think, like there are so many different styles of commentary. Just like
2: there's different styles of coach that can be really effective, but there are certain commentators who are like so highly informative that you feel like you're watching like a David Attenborough documentary about powerlifting when Mm -hmm. they're there, and it makes it like really good fun and rewarding, and you feel like enriched well then there's also there's also commentators who are pure hype men and are just like it It adds to the emotional
1: atmosphere of powerlifting it's it's crocodile dundee
2: yeah 100 percent. great australian (laughs) reference by the way bryce that was really good um but i'm not i'm not really sure whether one is universally better or worse than the other um but i'd say that probably the one that tugs at your heartstrings is going to be the one that like that everybody will remember most fondly what's Alex, what do you reckon? Who are the most like iconic commentators that you can think of? Not in powerlifting, just generally.
0: Well, I think he's the most iconic commentator.
2: In powerlifting or in, no, like just, in all yeah, sports? Yeah, in,
0: in powerlifting, yeah. Um, In all sports, I don't know if anyone would know, but would know these because like I watch mostly basketball. Go on. But Mike Breen is probably my favorite commentator right now. What's he just, do? He just basketball. He's the lead commentator for the um, ABC games. He just does like a great sort of blend of getting excited about certain moments, just um, sort of delivering like the story of the game and stuff like that. Like that's kind of what you need is like you need context and then you need excitement and you need them to meet.
2: Yeah, I reckon it'd be good to have like a almost like ESPN like panel type of powerlifting competition commentary where you had one person who was like, just running the show and saying, this is the lift that's coming up. You had one hype man and one like informative guy that you could throw to it.
0: Well, that's mm-hmm. kind of like what they do when they have live stream commentary. They have like a, the play-by-play and then the color commentator, which is that's, like what they that's do a in most. That's different
1: job. Yeah, that's a different job than what mm-hmm. Gino would be yeah. doing. Uh, like being the announcer in the stadium, you know, but to Alex's credit, I do feel sometimes like, Gino steals some of the attention from the lifters because he's so extra. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, we'll accept, I'll, I'll accept both of your answers. Um, next topic, Bryce, this is COVID-19 themed overrated, underrated or properly rated board games. Hmm.
1: Board games are overrated. Uh, yes, (laughs) I, I, Okay, so you're you're um, you're quarantining yourself, you're you're inside and you're trying to find a board game. And you are probably not in a household that has more than two people, let's say. This is the majority of people. The n- number of board games you can choose that are fun with two people is pretty limited and you can still find some but they're still pretty limited good source of time good source of fun you know gets you disconnected from technology still think board games are more fun with more people most of the time so down with board games not down with two-person board games Alex
0: I completely agree um I like to play board games in like like Bryce alluded to big groups of people like probably six is probably the the best number for a board game um, and yeah, you're just not going to find that when you're in quarantine on your own at home. But I, I really appreciate your answer, Bryce. I was like exactly what we're looking for in this, in this segment.
2: Yeah, <laughs> nice, well nice,
0: anal- nice analysis. Just perfect.
2: I just want to add a couple it. of, I want to add a couple of things cause I think board games are also overrated. Um, is like the replay value on most board games is really low. There's only a few that are like consistently fun for you to play over and over again, or like consistently as good as the first time you play them. Like Monopoly is pretty much always the same experience. Scrabble's pretty much always the same experience. But there are so many where it's like, once you've played it like once, you just don't ever want to do it again. Um, And I think board games have been superseded, particularly because of the lack of like replay value and the lack of like potential development in the game by a lot of like video games and just other things that we can do for fun. And Mm -hmm. what Bryce said about the number of people involved also just puts a hard cap on
1: like how many times you can play a game without getting really sick of it. You know? Okay. So I'm going to throw it back to powerlifting. Uh, you guys asked me to come up with one. So I'll bring up the last one. And that is ready to drink protein overrated, underrated or properly rated Alex.
0: I'll go first. Um, I think properly rated convenience, high, high, high rating, uh, price too high, too high. And that's probably what swings it back to properly rated. But, you know, given they have them at service stations and supermarkets and they're kind of readily available, that's like a big tick. So like they, they are what they are. They know what they are and they're properly rated.
2: I, I actually think they're underrated. Um, and I agree with almost everything Alex has had to say, um, but I think people don't quite appreciate like just how well that they, how well they serve their particular niche. So like we all have protein powder at home and when you're wanting to make a protein shake at home, there's nobody forcing you to have a ready to made ready to have protein drink. Um, And likewise, if you want to throw some extra protein in your yogurt or your oats or whatever, nobody's forcing you to do that with a ready-made protein drink. But if you are on the fly, um, a lot of people who want to have like say a mixed meal, but don't actually have the time or inclination to sit down and like go to a cafe and get a sandwich could have something that has like a similar level of Epicurean delight by just getting a, a ready-made protein drink (laughs) and a chocolate bar or something. Um, And so I think it's because they are so convenient both to consume, um, both to consume and to find, you can actually just pair them with lots of other really delicious foods and almost like hack your way into a pretty macro friendly meal that services your desire for a milkshake and a choppy. So, <laughs> so from my perspective, people don't quite appreciate just how much they can broaden your nutritional palate. What do you reckon? This guy, just said,
1: this guy just said Epicurean delight.
0: Yeah. I just <laughs> muted myself and told Chrissy cause we were talking about how much of a nerd you are earlier.
1: <laughs> Honestly, I learned
2: Epicurean delight. I thought it was so funny. I, this English teacher, he was the funniest guy. And he used to just troll the class constantly, and he um, he had a few mannerisms. Like he used to tell dad jokes in the middle of explaining something about literature. So he would be like talking about heart of darkness, and then just go off on a tangent that culminated in like a really bad pun. And you could see you could see immediately when he had decided he was going to do that because his manner and his voice changed. But it was still so funny. And he he we walked in one time because this was an English extension and we walked in one time and he had his feet kicked up on the desk and he was reading a book and the class had all sat down before he even acknowledged us. And he sort of, he like almost breathed his book in and then folded a bookmark into it and put it down with this long sigh and said, you know, nothing compares with the Epicurean delight of just holding a book in your hands. And, you know, he started talking about like the sights, the smells, the feel of turning pages and how like, the iPad will never take off and things. I think he was wrong on that front. Um, but it was just so funny. Uh, I think I was one of the few people who appreciated that he was kind of joking, but also it was just such a delightful phrase that I thought I'd keep it.
0: Well, I've heard you say some yeah, thoughts a lot about books. Will.
2: yeah, I do very much prefer. Let's just do an additional one. I reckon. So this is the the best forms of reading literature. By a mile, the best is a paperback book. Feels the best in your hand. You don't have like the issues that you have with a hardback where like the spine gets dodgy and feels weird when you try and open it and like hold it in bed. You know, if you have like a big, thick hardback book, it feels shitty when you open it, but a paperback always feels good. You can rest it in one hand. I reckon that's the best way of reading anything. Second best is hardback because you still get the delight of flicking through pages and feeling them and smelling them and stuff third is reading on a tablet and then by far the worst way of, con- Oh, actually next worst way of reading something is audiobook, And then by far worst is reading things on a laptop. What do you think about that?
1: Bryce? I'm going to have a different order than you. Uh, about a year ago, I got a Kindle and I've been loving it. Uh, it's awesome. You can change the text size. It's back illuminated so you can read with no light in bed. You can hold it. It's so light. You can hold it with one hand and just kind of click the pages as you go forward. I'm actually finding that I read faster with a Kindle uh, for the same amount of of book than I would with a, a paperback. And I don't like paperback books. Like I feel like keeping it open with one hand is really difficult unless I uh, like almost break the spine and just kind of force it to stay a little bit more open. So I would put hardback next, then I put paper back. I agree with you reading on a laptop sucks. I'd put that down in a, a distant uh, close to last. Alex doesn't read books. Do you
0: laptop clearly the worst way to read, but I would also, I would also prefer paper, um, like you will. Um, Chrissy reads on her phone and I just, I just don't know how she does it.
2: So Bryce, this is the amount of connection I have to books generally. Like I have in my room, I have a big bookshelf. And when I was younger, I used to read like a couple of books a week, um, for ages, we have massive bookshelves in my house. And I, I used to love having complete collections of books all in like the same edition and things as well. And so when I, when I was 19, I went and traveled around Europe for three or four months with my mate. And when I was leaving Sydney, I'd heard like there was this new good series called A Song of Ice and Fire. And, and I was like, oh, I better pick up the first couple of those books. Um, and so I bought, I've bought the first two books of A Song of Ice and Fire, which that's Game of Thrones for people who don't know. And so I read the whole first book on the flight between Sydney and I went to Oslo first. So it was like 36 hours in transit, read the whole first book. And so I put it in my backpack and started the second book. And I ended up walking around in Oslo and finding the third and fourth book in a bookshop in English, Um, same edition, so I bought them. And there were seven books out. There's still seven books out because George Martin's a really slow author of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I had the first six books of which one is split into two editions or two halves. Sorry, I had the first six books all in paperback and the seventh book in a hardback edition. Mm. (laughs) Right, And I was carrying... I was carrying all of them though, all so eight books in my shitty little backpack that I was traveling Europe around. And I bought all of them within like five weeks of traveling. And I carried them with me for the entire, for the entire trip. Cause I just refused to like break up a book collection, even though I could have left any of them at a given hostel. Like I was just too connected to it. I can't do it.
1: Yeah. That's, that's another uh, benefit of, of Kindle. You know, as I, I have a thousand books on something this size and it's great.
0: Yeah, but that's the coolest fucking story I've ever heard ever. Can you tell it again?
2: (laughs) Cool, Alex. Well, you'd be able to use words like Epicurean as well if you'd ever fucking read anything longer than an NBA scorecard. So,
0: Yeah, you're right. I'm not going to deny it.
2: (laughs) All right. Bryce, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Um, Your last job is to tell the audience where they can find you, um, you know, where they can find the strength athlete and
1: anything else. Like... Yeah. So, um, speaking of kind of coaching things, we're working on a lower cost coaching, uh, especially kind of coming out of this, it's going to be something that, uh, is a little bit cheaper, a little bit less customized, but still something that is better than a template and responds to the way that athletes are making progress or need to make changes or need to deload. So keep an eye out for that. That'll be released sometime this year. Um, all things uh, working in our favor. Other than that, you can find out more about coaching at thestrengthathlete.com. I'm now streaming my workouts, at least for the foreseeable COVID future at twitch.tv backslash thestrengthathlete.
2: Cool. Um, Well, I'm Will Berkman. You can find me on Instagram at w.berkmanpt. I'm
0: Alex Hayes, Alex Hayes underscore process, and also follow Weekly Weights podcast on Instagram too.
2: This is like Alex's new pet project is try and get the weekly weights Instagram page up to like, you know, a couple of
1: thousand followers in the next few weeks. Please do. All right. Thank you everybody. We'll talk to you next week.